What will it take for public and private leaders to put all Americans on a path to opportunity? At the 2022 Forum on Leadership, former U.S. Secretary of Transportation Elaine Chao and Gary Cohn, former director of the National Economic Council, joined director of the Bush Institute SMU Economic Growth Initiative, Colm Clark, on stage to tackle this challenging question. That's up next on Overheard at the Bush Center. Good morning, everyone. Let's start with a question. Could you please raise your hand if you know people who have moved from California to Texas for work opportunities over the last two years? It's looking kind of like 100%, almost 100%. Okay, now raise your hand if you know people who've gone in the other direction, from Texas to California for an opportunity over the last two years. Could it literally be zero? Oh my gosh. That's quite a gap. Over the last four years, I've had the opportunity here at the Bush Institute to write and speak a lot about why the Dallas-Fort Worth metro area ranks first among all U.S. metros for net inbound migration from elsewhere in the country, and this is both for the decade 2010 to 20 and over the last year. Houston, by the way, ranks second. At the Bush Institute, we've also written a lot about the more general question of why so many Americans are rethinking where they want to live and work, and why so many companies are reimagining where they want to base their operations. Now, our work came to the attention of a popular podcast called Freakonomics Radio. And uh, a couple of months, they released, um, a couple of months ago, they released uh, two episodes inspired by our work with the title, Why Is Everyone Moving to Dallas? And the podcast pretty much went viral. Now, I highly recommend it to you, in part because it's a fun take on things that are happening here in Dallas and around our country, and it might add a little bit to our Texas swagger. But I also commend it to you because it addresses a pretty big and serious question, and that is, how can we create more prosperous, high-opportunity cities, towns, and regions in 21st century America? At the Bush Institute, I lead our Blueprint for Opportunity work, which focuses on exactly this question. A couple months ago, we put out uh, a pair of reports making the case that great, prosperous cities of high opportunity have always shared certain commonalities. They are places that focus more than most other places on educating their young people and promoting knowledge and innovation. They pursue pro-growth, commerce-friendly policies. They attract and retain talent by offering good, affordable quality of life. They welcome enterprising newcomers from around the country and all over the world. And they build strong communities, empowering people to come together to address common challenges. Now, the DFW metro area and a handful of other metro areas, mostly in the Sun Belt, but increasingly in the Midwest as well, uh, score higher than most other places on these metrics on the whole, despite their many challenges. And this makes them exceptionally good places to get ahead and to pursue the American dream. So at the same time, however, too many cities in our country, and indeed too many states, make it too hard to start a business, too hard to enter an occupation, too hard to build homes, too hard to find quality schools, too hard to raise a child in a safe environment, too expensive to get ahead. Uh, and that is why so many people are moving to Dallas and to other cities here in the booming Texas Triangle region. At the Bush Institute, we strongly believe America needs a fresh pro-opportunity agenda. We have always based our work on the conviction that strong economic growth is the surest path 
to opening up opportunity and should be the top goal of our economic policies. Now, what does a pro-opportunity agenda look like? Here we strongly believe that it starts with outperforming all other countries in educating and training our people. It demands that we put our national fiscal house in order and recommit to American leadership in the world economy. It requires immigration reform based on the understanding that all countries, like all cities, are engaged in a ferocious competition for talent. A pro-opportunity agenda also means building the infrastructure we need to connect people, markets, and ideas. And it means tearing down the many, op the many barriers to opportunity that exist in too many parts of our country and making prosperity more inclusive everywhere. Now, this is a tall order, but as we tackle the challenge of advancing a pro-opportunity agenda here at the Bush Institute, we start with one, at least one I should say, unique edge. And that is that we have the privilege and the distinct perspective that comes from doing this work here in Dallas in the heart of one of the fastest growing, most opportunity rich regions in the world. We're now going to turn to a conversation on economic policy and I would like to welcome our panelists, Secretary Elaine Chow and Mr. Gary Cohn to the stage. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, everyone. All right. Well, I'm honored to be moderating a conversation with two of our nation's most experienced and respected policymakers and thought leaders on pro-growth, pro-opportunity economic policy. Elaine Chow has served as U.S. Secretary of Transportation and U.S. Secretary of Labor. She's also served as CEO of United Way and Director of the Peace Corps, where she launched the first Peace Corps programs in the Baltic nations and newly independent republics of the former Soviet Union, including Ukraine. A Harvard Business School graduate, Secretary Chow arrived in America in third grade, not yet knowing how to speak English, became an American citizen at 19, and made history as the first Asian American woman to serve in a, pres in a presidential cabinet. She's now a director of Kroger and a number of new, of new economy tech companies in the mobility sector. We're thrilled to have Secretary Chow at the forum, not only because of her wide-ranging expertise on policy issues, but also because of her lifelong passion for promoting opportunities for all Americans. Gary Cohn served as director of the White House National Economic Council from 2017 to 18. As the president's chief economic advisor, he played a central role in successful initiatives to reform our country's tax and regulatory systems and promote economic growth. Before his service in Washington, Mr. Cohn worked at Goldman Sachs for 26 years, serving for 10 of those years as president and chief operating officer of the firm. Today, Mr. Cohn is vice chairman of IBM and co-chairman of Cone Robbins Holding Corp, as well as a board member for several companies engaged in national security, blockchain infrastructure, regulatory technology, and med tech. Mr. Cone brings to this conversation virtually unparalleled expertise on the intersection of economic policy with private markets and the core drivers of economic growth. Secretary Chow and Mr. Cone, we are so honored to have you here at the Bush Center. Thank, Thank you. you. All right, well, let's get into it. The economic subject at the top of everyone's minds these days is inflation. Now, I'll submit that today's inflation that we're seeing is in large measure the result of excessive spending, arguably money printing in early 2021, but it also points to bigger supply chain problems, demographic challenges, uh, scarcity of skilled workers. I'd like to ask you both to speak to 
What's likely to happen in the near term as the Fed starts raising interest rates, continues to raise interest rates, but more important, I'd like to ask you, how can America address these structural challenges to ensure strong uh, non-inflationary growth over the long term? Mr. Cohn, let's start with you. So first of all, thank you very much. So near term, <laughs> that's a tough question because I don't think a whole lot's happening in the near term. The Fed is so far behind the curve that no matter how fast they move, it almost doesn't matter. And the markets have already gotten way ahead of them in pricing in what they should have already done. So if you look at 10-year interest rates, they've moved three and a half times higher than they were on January 1st of this year. So we've gone to 70 basis points to 2.5, 2.6% already. So you know, 10-year rates have, have doubled. Um, so from the interest rate picture, that effect is already in the market. Unfortunately, the consumer is feeling that today. If you've got an adjustable rate mortgage, you're feeling it. If you've got credit card debt, you're feeling it. Um, so that tool to slow down the economy is not happening. Um, unfortunately, the Fed doesn't know how to manufacture agricultural products. They don't know how to manufacture oil. Um, they don't know how to get people back in the labor force. Um, and a lot of those issues are really driving the inflation in this country. So when you ask me for the short-term solution, I don't really think they have a short-term solution. Long-term, as we do raise rates, we will have an effect. But the long-term issue to me is a real fundamental issue. We have to make a big policy decision in this country. We have to, we have to decide where we are on three major issues. We have to decide how we want climate, energy, and industrial policy to intersect. Today, the intersection of those three is the null set. So we keep trying to make policy, and we make policy in one of those areas without thinking about how it will affect the other. And until we decide how those three should affect each other, it's gonna be very difficult to figure out how to grow our economy sustain the growth, and do it in a way that makes, that, that creates a, a non-inflationary cycle. Okay, well, Secretary Chow, let's, let's turn to you. What should economic policymakers be focusing on in view of these structural challenges? I have a lot to say on there. Before, before I do, I want to acknowledge President and Mrs. Bush. You were very kind to mention that I'm the first Asian American woman ever to be appointed to the cabinet, and that is because of President George W. Bush's trust in me. Thank you, sir. I think on April 12th, when the, the CPI was released by the Bureau of Labor Statistics, which was in the Department of Labor, the inflationary numbers were much worse than expected. And there's a short term, as you mentioned, and a long term. If I can just go on the short term, I think in the short term, 40% of the inflationary uh, increases are due to energy. You who are in this state that is so involved with energy production understand what the FERC has recently done on February 17th and also what the Interior Department has done. FERC basically came out with a new rule that discouraged the laying of new pipelines. So at the very minimum, uh, this president currently in office needs to allow and reverse the decision on the Keystone XL pipeline, number one. Number two, uh, on FERC, they have got to uh, rescind a recent ruling that they had issued on February 17th 
that basically discouraged the laying down of new pipeline. Number three, the Interior Department has issued new rules now discouraging drilling. They think that drilling, oil and gas drilling, is no longer a national priority. And so what they've done is to decrease uh, the allowance for new leases. And then secondly, they've asked for increased royalties on leases for purchasers. And number three, they basically have set a whole new procedure for approving these leases so that they are very bureaucratic and much more difficult for purchasers to be able you know, to drill for new uh, oil and gas uh, properties. And so that has a direct impact, obviously, on energy expectations going forward with present ramifications. Longer term, I think uh, what Gary said is absolutely correct which is the, the government should not be competing with the private sector in compensating the, the workforce, which has been what's happening. So there is a piece of legislation that's pending out there, BBB, Build Back Better, uh, which is gonna add additional stimulus to the economy. We do not need that. Okay. We don't need any more additional stimulus. Secondly, I think that's going back to what President Bush has said, we need to be taking a look at uh, immigration reform. We need to have a merit-based, work-based uh, visa system that allows workers to come into this country and work. Number three, we need to be taking a look at some of the ports that are delayed long, with long lines in Long Beach and Los Angeles, for example, and look at the East Coast ports and some of the South Southern Coast uh, ports and ask, why do they not have backups? And it's because they have less stringent work rules. They have more flexible hours. Mm -hmm. So let's take a look at that. And then also the private sector needs to be, you know, needs to be alleviated of all of this regulatory burden. The Fed has their role. They've got to continue to raise rates, as harsh as that may sound. And then also uh, we need to have tariffs lifted on steel and also on lumber because they are continuing to add inflationary pressures as well. So unless those straightforward, um, seemingly simple, but politically fraught uh, solutions are looked upon, I don't think very much would change. And I might also put a plug in for the Bush Institute's 4% solution. Ah. But those of you that have not read that book, you've got to read that book. <laughs> because it talks about all of these issues and how common sense ago they are, but again, we just don't have the will, and it's fraught with politics. Well, thank you for the plug. The bookstore is over there, and uh, <laughs> there are copies for sale. Um, well, uh, you both talked about how to break through the, in, in many cases, regulation-imposed barriers to supply growth, supply chain issues, and so forth. But in some ways, you could say maybe the toughest supply issue is increasing the supply of skills, of addressing the shortages of skilled workers in so many fields. So, Secretary Chow, let's start with you on this one. What do you think are the most impactful steps that we can do, federal, state, local policy, and so forth, to prepare future workers for the economy of the 21st century and, and also help people who feel left behind to re-engage? Well, we are now in an information technology. You know, it used to be that if you were, um, if you discontinue school at a certain level, like a, you know, um, well, let, I should put it differently. If you are um, a um, stationary operator and then stationary engineer, which used to be called a custodian, uh, you basically had a tool belt uh, that was very heavy. Nowadays, you walk around with one little gadget 
that can tell you what the HVAC system in your building is doing. And so our country is now increasingly uh, sophisticated. Uh, the skills required of our workforce is increasingly sophisticated. So the number one uh, ad, uh, admonition is uh, that people have, we've got to persuade our young people to stay in school. And that's why President Bush's No Child Left Behind uh, educational initiative was so important uh, during his tenure. And number two, uh, during his tenure, during his administration, we actually tried to reform the training systems, the training programs of this country by basically investing in workers, by giving them a discrete amount of money that they themselves can choose how they want to reinvest in workforce training. Right now, we have a system where you have to go to the government-trained systems, and they tell you what you have to be trained in, whether you're interested or not, and whether there's a market demand or not. So the current government system can be educating, training a 1,000 hairdressers for a little community that perhaps only needs 16. We need information technology, we uh, specialists, uh, it, and it doesn't have to be four-year college. It can be a two-year college, it can be a certification program, a Microsoft certified program to be an you know, information programmer. That would be very helpful uh, in developing a career path. And so I'm a great believer, as, uh, as the former president, in uh, community colleges. Mm. And uh, the No Child Left Behind was a great piece of legislation. It emphasizes education. And then, after, you know, and then afterwards, we need to continue to train our workforce, and that can be done through the workforce training through giving people uh, more flexibility and more control over the dollars that they can use themselves for workforce training. Mr. Cohen, let's, let's pose the same question to you. So what, what are the most impactful things we can do? And I do want to ask you, in view of your Goldman Sachs experience. Could you also address how can the private sector uh, play a role? So first of all, I agree with everything Secretary Chow just said. So, so I don't want to repeat that. So let me, let me avoid that. Um, That's a good pattern we've had in the past. It is. It is. It is. <laughs> uh, I'll just agree with everything you say. Um, so again, I got to go back to my first question. What's our industrial policy in this country? Do we want to be an industrialized nation or not? Answer that for me and I'll tell you a little bit what I think we should do on the educational system. If we do, we've got to make that decision. If we don't, we've got to make a different decision. We're not going to get that answered right now. So let, let, me, let me then peel back the, 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 the onion a little bit on the whole educational process. I think we have the complete wrong metric in this country. So we judge success on education. You know, the benchmark, and we talk about charter schools, and I'm involved in charter schools, and everyone is, and we all want to educate kids. The benchmark is only how many kids get into college, how many kids graduate from college. I think we have to throw that out the window. We should create a benchmark of how many kids are self-sustaining individuals by, I don't care, pick an age, 22 years of age. So you can make a decision when you graduate college and go spend money and get an education and then four years later get a job, probably pay off a bunch of student debt and it's years till you're self-sustaining. You can go into a trade school today and start working as an electrician, a plumber, a carpenter that day, work as an apprentice, this is how my parents grew up, work as an apprentice get a paycheck, get an education at the same time, and in that four-year period, you'll be a self-sustaining individual, able to support yourself, able to live a decent life, 
with complete ability to keep moving up and keep earning more and earning more and filling a need that we have. So we've got a lot of programs in this country. We just have to make it that these are interesting programs where kids want to go down these paths versus telling everyone that, no, you've got to go to college. No, you've got to go to college. You've got to go to college to do certain things. And, and, and Secretary Chow's right. Many of our most talented computer programmers today and many of our greatest software engineers today, they didn't graduate from college. Right. Like, they just learned the skills somewhere or they got into a Microsoft or they got into a Google or they got into Facebook or they got into an IBM and somehow they got in and they sort of picked up the skill. So in many respects, we self-perpetuate this, this outcome of guiding our youth down this strange path of this, there, there's one path to success. There are, very, there are lots of paths to success. And, and so when you ask the second part of the question, I think companies today, especially in the labor market we have today, there's not a CEO that I talk to in the world today that, tell, that doesn't tell me their number one, two, and three problem is attracting and retaining talent, attracting and retaining talent, and attracting and retaining talent. And they all say, like, like, price is not the issue. I'll pay what I need to pay. So we're in an environment today where, where talent is a scarce commodity. People will hire anyone. They will take chances. They will educate. They will send people to school. It was mentioned what Amazon's doing after 90 days. They're sending people to college. Um, almost every company I know today has some type of learning on the job, or learning outside the job where companies are willing to contribute to people's um, well-being, even if it means that the job they're in, they won't be in when they get done with that learning career, whether it's a six-month program, a 12-month program, or a four-year program. Could I follow up on the actual question that you posed at the beginning, which is, do we want to be an industrial nation? President Biden is very much out there saying he wants to, in a sense, subsidize reshoring of supply chains. Is that the answer, or is it deeper international integration? How, if we want to become an industrial nation, what's the path? Well, so, so look, can we be an industrial nation and have zero, zero pollutants and be carbon free mm -hmm. and do everything we want to do? I don't know if we can do that. My, my, my actual opinion, and this is, there's probably debates in this room, there are certain things that we have to reshore. I think if we didn't learn this in the last couple of years, there are some vital resources that are important to us that we need to make sure that we have the ability and we are manufacturing and storing here domestically in the United States. There are many other goods that we, as the consumers of the world, love to consume, but they're clearly not essential items. They're clearly non-essential items. I'm not sure we have to be the manufacturer of those non-essential items. And I know this part of the equation. I know that we can't compete on price. And so to the extent that we become the manufacturer of those non-essential items, we are going to create major inflation. Right. Because, it, look, let, let's be honest. We would be competing against the China where the cost of capital is zero. Mm -hmm. um, the cost of labor, unfortunately, is dramatically below our cost of labor. Whether they're paying a living wage or not, we don't know. Their cost 
for the environment, unfortunately, because we only have one environment, they're not taking care of the environment as low. So therefore, they will be able to produce products at a substantially lower cost than we can produce products mm. here in the United States. So if we want to produce those, those, the, those nice to have, not need to have items, we could clearly do it, but it's going to dramatically change the price point at which consumers are going to be able to pay for them. And, and, and by essence, they're either going to have less of them right. or we're going to have a completely different wage cycle and inflation cycle in this country. Yeah, if I can just add to that, I totally agree with Gary. And by the way, I, I loved working with Gary. So, uh, but the, it, what you pose is a very important question. Um, we know what needs to be done. But I hope that people will understand it's not that easy. Because manufacturing on the decline occurred over 40 years. Mm -hmm. And so it will take us some time to ramp up and reshore as well. Could we turn to physical infrastructure, something yeah. Secretary Chow, you've had enormous experience with. So the legislation Congress passed last year will promise us to spend, I think, about $650 billion over the old baseline over a decade. I'd like to ask you both, starting with you, two questions. One is, what do we most need to be investing infrastructure-wise? What, what are the key priorities? Um, and the second is, studies show, and this is really troubling, I think, to me, that it costs more than twice as much to build some forms of physical infrastructure in our country than even in the countries of Western Europe. What's gone wrong, and how can we do things more efficiently? Well, I wish that our infrastructure bill passed because it would have invested more in actual infrastructure, transportation infrastructure, and secondly, it would have allowed much greater role of participation by the private sector. So of the 650 billion, basically only 110 billion are really for roads and bridges. Mm. And the remainder are for um, transit, bike trails, uh, you know, uh, elect electric vehicles and um, other types of um, transportation or infrastructure. A broadband, for example, which I totally support, which is very essential for rural America. Sure. Um, but um, what we're also seeing is that of that uh, 110, you know, you ask a very pivotal question, and that is, what is good for America? And the and the key of that is what is good for the whole country right. is misleading because our country's infrastructure is very decentralized. Mm -hmm. And so what we should be emphasizing is giving the states and the localities greater flexibility to do what they think is best. Texas has very different views about roads and bridges than does San Francisco or Los Angeles, and maybe San Francisco. And so our transportation policy should be flexible enough that allows the states to decide for themselves whether they want to invest in roads and bridges or whether they want to invest in transit. There's been more and more encroachment mm. into the monies that are allotted for roads and bridges because now 25% of, of the gasoline tax, which traditionally has been used to fund highways, is now for transit. Mm. And as we talk about, uh, Gary and I were talking about a decrease in gasoline tax. We've had this uh, you know, new infrastructure bill, but there's talk right. also about rolling back the source of revenue for this infrastructure bill. So I think, um, you know, I think the rural broadband is terrific. Um, going forward, uh, I think we need to give the states more flexibility. On the second part now, yeah. about why is it so expensive? So I started... Uh, my job as Secretary of Transportation, and I'm going to Alaska, and everybody's so excited I'm going to Alaska. You know, before a principal goes to a state, 
they try to find you an announceable, something that you can give. So they said, we've got a great announceable for you. You can say that you have now given the final EIS for Sterling Highway in Alaska. So I say, and I innocently ask, so how long did it take to get this EIS for the Sterling Highway in Alaska? And the answer came back, 37 years. So I said, I'm not so sure that's a great thing for me to bring up to Alaska. Uh, but what's, um, so what is happening is that the approval process, the permitting process, is so onerous that we, in fact, beat out Europe in terms of bureaucracy and delays. Mm. In this particular um, a bill, that's why I say that I wish that our bill had passed, is that there is um, project labor agreements. Mm -hmm. Under President Obama, project labor agreements, which requires unionized labor, was suggested on projects over $25 million. Now it is required for every project over $35 million. And on top of that, there's prevailing wage. Mm. So that's gonna eat up about a third of the cost of uh, the, well, a third of the monies that would be uh, allowed to be used for infrastructure. And this is the Davis-Bacon Act? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Can, can I just Count, give yeah. you a, so, so Secretary Chow, uh, like we spend an enormous amount of time on this topic. Oh, guys, I think it's a passion of both of ours, understanding how broken it was. I, I, I'm going to just give you a, a, a quick answer on top of what the secretary said, because I think this is what's really misunderstood about infrastructure, and the secretary touched on it a little bit. But think about infrastructure in the United, in the United States. 90% regulated and funded by the federal government, less than 10% owned by the federal government. Yeah. I'm giving you a second to think about that. Okay, so... so when people talk about infrastructure, we talk about it, but then when you go to execute, it's not a plan. It's little, little isolated projects. Like the shovel ready ring a bell with anyone? Like it's little, little isolated projects. If we really are serious about infrastructure in this country, and we talked about this, we would have an infrastructure plan mm -hmm. for the country. And when you say Europe can do it cheaper, it's because Europe has a infrastructure plan. When they're gonna build a cross-European rail system hmm. or a electric grid that goes from country A to country B to country C, they plan it. They don't build one tower from point A to point B, they build 80 towers at once. We build one tower from A to B. And then we go away for a few years, then we come back and build Tower 2, and it's really expensive to build it that way. So, again, if we would sit down and get all of the players to agree, which would be hard, this would be hard, because if we were going to do something, there would clearly be a state left out, and they would say, look, I'm not getting my fair share, it would, be, it would be hard to do. But that said, I think you, if you really wanted to do this right, and you really sat back and said, look, we've got to revamp the infrastructure of the United States. We've got to modernize it. We'll do that. We'll do that along with 
uh, and I know General Mattis is going to talk later, Secretary Mattis is going to talk later, we've got to revamp our military. A lot of our military is going to be unmanned, unwomen vehicles. So we can put those sites in different states where we sit. And you start picking places and saying, okay, you're going to get this big piece of infrastructure. You're going to get this unmanned center. You're going to get this. We could make it work. We just have to decide that's what we want to do. And until we do that, we're just going to do independent projects, and they're going to be really expensive. Mm. Let's talk about innovation in America. Some argue that really socially significant innovation has actually slowed in the U.S., and you all will know Peter Thiel famously said, we wanted flying cars, and instead we got 140 characters. And you can kind of debate how useful Twitter has really been. It's up for grabs. But I would love to ask you both. So Secretary Chow, let's start with you. In what fields do you expect truly transformational, exciting technological change? What's exciting that you're seeing out there? I think the transportation sector is just uh, so exciting in the transformational technologies that we are seeing. And for example, like AVs, automated vehicles, self-driving vehicles. We don't call them driverless cars because actually if you look at the terminology, 74% of Americans actually don't like that word. So uh, it's kind of a disincentive. <laughs> so self-driving cars. And then you have drones, a technology, um, and then basically supersonic flight is coming back, mm. noise pollution is being, take, is being addressed, and then also commercial space. High-speed rail is another alternative here. There's a very promising high-speed rail project between Houston and Dallas. Um, it's um, central, uh, Texas, Texas Central, central yeah. Yeah, a high-speed rail project. And so all of this has great promise. As for the government, um, for us, the government is a regulator, so it really can't uh, promote innovation, but it can regulate safety, security, and privacy without hampering innovation. That's the important part. The regulators, the government, has a role um, in doing their job, but by, if they just would do their job without hampering innovation, that will allow innovation to occur. So AVs, we have 38,000 people who die uh, in traffic deaths, uh, accidents, mm. and automated vehicles can give, uh, can reduce that number because 94% of accidents occur due to human error. And then think about the disabled or the elderly. Automated vehicles will give back to these populations, these communities, their freedom. Mm. And then if you, and this is also being applied on the commercial side. If you take a, a thousand, if you take a 1,000 mile trip, it would take about, by truck, it would take about 22 hours. Do you know why? Because there is a 10 hour rest period, 12 hour rest period, which is required for human drivers. And if you had automated vehicles, which is not to supplant work, the workforce, it is to augment the worker shortage, including uh, the shortage of 80,000 truck drivers in our economy, uh, you can actually cut back on that time period of, you know, you can have a, a trip that will span a thousand miles basically in 10, 12 hours. So that's going to help the efficiency and productivity of our of our um, transportation system as well. I remember a couple of years ago at, at the forum, uh, yeah. Jeff Bezos said um, that innovation won't reduce labor, it will make labor more engaging. It will make work Absolutely. more. So uh, Mr. Cohen, how about you? I'll, th I'll throw a couple out there that, um, that weren't touched on. I think the machine learning, artificial intelligence, we're still at the beginning of that game. Um, quantum computing, 
really interesting space. We're not even sure what it can do. And one you and I have talked about, which I think is interesting, it's got a bad connotation right now, which is blockchain. Yeah. I think the blockchain really has phenomenally interesting, practical, everyday uses that will become part of our life over the next decade. So I want to follow up on that because people may, if they've read about blockchain at all, maybe they think it's what you trade Bitcoin on, you know, it's, or maybe and it's a way, like Silk Road, it's a way to move money illicitly around. How can this actually make life better for ordinary Americans? So, so look, that's why I said it has some negative connotations because they think of it as cryptocurrencies. And, and look, I, I, blockchain is a, is a functionality. It's a clearing system with um, title and data and information, I'm trying to simplify it. So the simple example I use is the old archaic way that we transfer housing titles or mortgage title. You know, if you go out and buy a house, you've got to have someone do you know, mortgage, title research, and then you've got to go buy title insurance. If you sell that house to me literally a week later, I've got to go pay someone to guess what? Go do title research, and then I gotta go buy title insurance. You would think if someone did it once and put it in an immutable system, that we could just transfer the same historical data from buyer to buyer to buyer. If that were in the blockchain, we would be able to transfer that data, and we'd have this perpetual um, data stream of exactly what happened with that house. And so we could buy and sell houses on almost a daily basis. And the bank could give you a mortgage on a daily basis because they would know exactly the title, who owns the house, what the, what the history of the house is. That's a really simple example where I think everyday Americans would, would really benefit from the ability and the ease and the simplicity and save money in transacting in something that they're spending more money than they need to today. To follow up on one other, you, you and I have talked about, you've been in the financial sector for most of your life, and we've talked about uh, the, the challenge that banking right. yep. lower income people is a loss-making proposition for exactly. a bank. Can we fix that? Yeah, look, with where we're headed in blockchain, and where I think central banks are heading, to digital currencies, I, I do believe that the major central banks around the world are going to digitize their currencies. So once you have a, a clearing system that works frictionless and basically costless, you now have a digital dollar or a digital yen or a digital euro or a digital pound. You now can create a digital bank account. You, you, you need a, 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 I don't want to get too detailed, a, a, a know your customer digital system, a anti-money laundering system. They're available, they're readily available. And once you do that, you can now bank anyone in America. And it doesn't cost you something to have that account open. So the issue historically for the, the low, lower income earners in America who, who actually get really taken advantage by the system, they go to payday lenders and they're being charged 10 to 20% to cash a, a paycheck, they could actually have a bank account right. where they would save all of those frictional costs and the banks could afford to have them have a bank account because the, the, the cost of that bank account would actually be zero. Once you have a digital currency and you had a, a frictionless uh, way to move currency through the system. So I, I do think this, this blockchain along with these digital fiat currencies will dramatically change the availability of banking, not just in the United States, around the world. That is exciting. Yeah. Yeah. 
I don't want to add a couple more things. One is uh, drones. Mm -hmm. We didn't talk enough about drones. Uh, drones can be enormously helpful in increasing productivity, increasing efficiencies with last mile mm -hmm. delivery because that is the most expensive, the hardest, it's congestion, um, it's congested that last mile. And also we're seeing drones now deployed in so many different ways and General Mattis will talk about that as well. They use it much more in the Army, but uh, whenever there was a hurricane or a forest fire and infrastructure needs to be rebuilt, basically drones are used to fly over the particular area and assess the damage so that mm. we get much better reports as to what is the rehabilitation. Aren't, aren't they also delivering um, pharmaceuticals to the biggest senior living Absolutely. facility in, in America, in Central Florida? They are, and they're also delivering uh, needed essential goods uh, overseas oh. as well. So drones are certainly uh, you know, an up and coming technology. People don't like it though. Some people are concerned about the privacy. So that's why the role of the regulator is to engage with the new emerging technologies in a way that addresses legitimate public concerns right. about safety, security, privacy without hampering innovation. And then also talk about commercial space. Right. Because of uh, the, re the advent of relaunchable uh, you know, ro uh, rockets, it's now so much less, ex so much less expensive to uh, send a rocket up into space. And we are now seeing the possibility of space tourism. Oh, wow. And no longer will it be the purview of billionaires to go wow. and enjoy outer space, but potentially uh, ordinary human beings as well. Could I ask you both briefly about a subject that could easily be a whole forum in itself, which is the challenge posed by China. Uh, there seems to be a growing political consensus, maybe almost the only thing the two parties agree on, on some degree of deliberate decoupling of the U.S. and Chinese economies. How, how do you all think about all this? Are we moving in the right direction on that front? Secretary Chow, you first. Well, you know, President George H.W. Bush uh, was <laughs> prescient in being among the very first Americans to go to China, open it up, understand the people, and for his whole entire life, uh, dedicate himself among many other causes to improving overall better relations for the harmony of the world. And so as a Chinese American, this issue has particular resonance because obviously, um, you know, my family came from there. What I'm really concerned about in, uh, in terms of this U.S.-China relations is the deterioration and the impact on Asian Americans. Because the increase in anti-Asian hate and harassment uh, is a real uh, occurrence and the community is very frightened. And it doesn't matter whether you're Chinese American or you're Japanese American or Korean American, I hate to say it, but most people can't tell the difference. And so it impacts all the community. I think it's, in, it's really important that we continue to engage with China. There are legitimate, very legitimate differences but it's really important that we continue engagement, a dialogue, so that we have an opportunity to influence the development you know, of that country. And I also want to say President George W. Bush also was there uh, when he was very young visiting his parents, and I still remember those stories and the impression really? that he had. I want to so, hear those someday myself. Yes, they're great stories. Mr. Cohn. So, so uh, we're, we're in um, you know, unanimous agreement here. So like, I, I think the reality of decoupling from China is completely unrealistic. I, I like to hear people talk about it. It's amusing to me. 
if you actually would plot out on a, a chart, and we did this in the White House, what we import from China and where else we could get it, there's a lot of things over there that I don't know where else we're getting them. So some, someone's going to have to tell me where, where we're going to get those things. Um, so China is a lot more vital to our well-being than we want to admit, we want to understand, and we want to acknowledge. So you have to start with that. So if we wanted to decouple with China, it would be a multi-decade process. And if the Chinese thought we were in a multi-decade process, they could really inflict massive pain and say, no, we're cutting you off today. Now, now, now go ahead, America, tell me how to live, tell me how to live your life. So, so there's a practical reality side. Then I look at it from an economic standpoint. You know, we're 350 million people here in the United States. I think they're 1.4 billion growing in wealth, growing in economic size. Wouldn't we want them as customers? for our growing companies? Wouldn't we want to have a relationship to export to someone that's four times your size and growing in wealth and growing in accumulation? Um, it seems to me that if we could figure out how to balance this difficult equation, and I'm, I, 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 I'm in, I completely agree, this is a difficult, difficult, difficult equation. I'm not dismissing all of the issues that exist here. There are a lot of issues to be worked out. If we can balance this equation, there's a lot in it for both sides. Um, in, in the place that's being underplayed completely, you know, we've got a huge competitive advantage that we do grow an enormous amount of food. And you know, we are in a cycle right now where food, and agricultural products specifically, are becoming so important to the world. Yep. And I think the, 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 the biggest issue for China right now is food and food scarcity. And there are opportunities for us to you know, get in real dialogue with China if we want to and say, hey, look, we are, we are the growers of food in the world. We historically paid farmers not to grow. We could pay farmers actually to grow. We could export more food to China and get something out of that because I do think there is a, a real scarcity issue right now. One last rapid fire question, just a one phrase answer to you both. As you noted before, Secretary Chow, we published a book 10 years ago on how American, America can attempt to grow at 4% a year. If we republish that book today, what is the chapter heading we most need to have in it? It's still relevant. Everything in there is relevant. You gotta get the book and read it. Okay. <laughs> Mr. Cohn. Um, the world runs on chips. World runs on ships. Thank you. Um, I think we've learned a whole lot in a short period of time. We have certainly learned that whether we are talking about creating the talent development pipeline of the future, whether we are talking about the technologies of the future, we have the ideas, we have the private sector that knows how to do it. Uh, we need the political will to remove some of the barriers that policy has sometimes put in the way. Uh, and Maybe we do need to actually republish that book and bring it up to date. <laughs> um, Secretary Chow, Mr. Cohn, we are honored to have you here. Thank you so Thank much you. for spending your time with us. It's an honor to be here. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you'd like to learn more about our Forum on Leadership, please visit bushcenter.org slash forum on leadership. For more information on the Bush Institute SMU Economic Growth Initiative, visit bushcenter.org slash economic growth.